G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you to take the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we'd greatly appreciate a couple of minutes of your time um, to, to do that. So today, joining Brian and myself in our virtual studio, we're going to talk to Sarah Lawrence-Mills, who's one of our first-year residents in anesthesia and analgesia here at the RBC. Um, hello, Sarah. Hello. How are you doing? And um, what we thought we'd talk about is a bit about the glycocalyx, because um, because what, well, maybe, Sarah, you could, you could say how you uh, um, got interested in the glycocalyx and... Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe we can talk about what the glycocalyx is as well. Yeah, maybe I'll start with what it what it is, <laughs> just to get people interested. Um, so the glycocalyx is a gel-like matrix, and it covers the surface of lots of living things, so bacteria, fungus, and some viruses. But the glycocalyx that I'm most important or interested in is the endothelial glycocalyx. Um, so that is the gel-like matrix covering the inside of endothelial cells. Um, I got interested in it, first of all, when I intercalated in health sciences. Um, so I did a kind of year out of the vet degree and was paired with a lovely supervisor called Natalie Finch, who um, was obsessed with the glycocalyx and got me just as excited about it. So what, what is it that gets you uh, excited about the glycocalyx? Um, so it's really important in maintaining um, vascular health, but also just general health. And there's really uh, loads of growing evidence in terms of uh, how it contributes to the development of disease and the progression of disease um, in lots of different disease states. So I think it's something, it's microscopic, um, but it's really exciting and, and has a wide reaching impact on our health. So could you maybe explain, please, that the kind of role that the glycocalyx or endothelial glycocalyx has um, in fluid dynamics? Yeah, absolutely. So um, because it coats the inside of blood vessels, it's really important in regulating the movement of all cells, but also fluid from inside the vessels out to the outside. Um, it physically forms a macromolecular sieve. So it's actually made up of sugars called glycosaminoglycans and proteins as well. And that forms a physical meshwork. It's also uh, heavily sulfated, so that gives it kind of a negative charge. So if you imagine it's kind of just sieving all of the molecules that are moving from inside the vessel outside. On top of that, it actually binds uh, albumin. So it has its own kind of oncotic pressure, which is really exciting because it kind of revises the starling forces that we originally thought. So previously we thought that it was just the oncotic pressure in the vessel that um, made a difference and that compared to the oncotic pressure outside of the vessel. But actually we've now got this third compartment of the glycocalyx that we need to consider in terms of fluid movement. And uh, and so with that um, idea of like a, a third compartment, so does that, does that sort of is that controversial in the way that fluid dynamics uh, works or is that actually considered that this is what is actually happening or has happened and we just didn't know it existed? Yeah, 
I think it I think it was a little bit controversial when it initially started because obviously all of our theories and um, our understanding previously has been based on those two fluid compartments. Um, the glycocalyx is really difficult to visualize because it's so fragile, which I think means that we missed it for so long. Um, but now there's been um, quite a few studies kind of proving the impact that it does have on fluid movement and how if we degrade it, we have lots of um, fluid movement outside of the vessels and potentially more permeability than we would with it there. Um, so I think it is quite widely accepted now. And, and what role does the glycocalyx have in, in regards to you know information illness, sepsis, and, and, and I suppose how does that change it? You know, why is it important, I suppose, to understand that for, for giving intravenous fluids? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the easiest way to understand its impact on inflammation and illness generally is just to consider a couple of its other main functions as well. Um, so because if you think about the glycocalyx coating the inside of blood vessels, whether it's there or not actually has a massive impact on whether cells within the vessel are able to bind to the endothelial cells. And this is really important in things like leukocyte extravasation. Um, so leukocyte adhesion molecule one, for example, is attached to endothelial cells and the glycocalyx can either cover it or it can expose it. And that can allow the white blood cells white blood cell to move outside of the capillaries. On top of that, the glycocalyx has a really important role in terms of maintaining enzymes. Um, so lots of enzymes are kind of dissolved into this meshwork and therefore when it's degraded, these enzymes can be released. Um, and there's lots of enzymes specifically involved in coagulation. So whether the glycocalyx is shed or not can contribute to a hyper or a hypocoagulable state. On top of that, the glycocalyx is really important in flow-mediated vasodilation. So that means the force of blood flow is actually transmitted to the endothelial cells through a protein within the glycocalyx. And that is really important in terms of maintaining our vascular tone and vasoconstriction um, and therefore vasodilation as well. So just bear those in mind a little bit in the future when we're talking about diseases. Um, but there's lots of evidence in terms of its specific role of the glycocalyx breakdown in disease in humans, for example, chronic kidney disease and sepsis, and then also in dogs as well. So there's evidence that it's broken down in hypercoagulability, mitral valve disease, parvovirus, and then, of course, sepsis, which is a, has a whole body of evidence out there in terms of the role of glycocalyx breakdown in this disease. And it's actually been shown that alterations in the glycocalyx composition are potentially one of the first features of sepsis in humans. There's been lots of research linking inflammatory proteins such as interleukin to concentration of glycocalyx markers such as hyaluronan. And if we think about our kind of functions of the glycocalyx in terms of regulating vessel permeability and um, giving access of these cells to the endothelial cells, then it makes sense that if inflammation causes its breakdown, these capillaries are going to become really leaky. We're going to get lots of platelet aggregation. We're going to get um, problems with our coagulation. And we're going to get lots of these white blood cells moving out and moving into the interstitium. On top of that, it gets a little bit worse um, because there's also research to show that the glycocalyx components themselves can actually trigger further pro-inflammatory cascades. Um, so they can act as damage-associated molecular patterns, making the inflammation even worse um, kind of themselves. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle. 
And then if you think on top of that, we are then looking at these septic patients and we're giving them lots and lots of fluids um, and they've got this really leaky um, vasculature, then it makes sense that these patients with known glycocalyx breakdown are likely to be much more um, vulnerable to our, our kind of overload or fluid overload as well. So could I ask Sarah, just sort of stepping back a little bit, so is, is the understanding to the endothelial glycocalyx exists, exists on all the vasculature in in the in the in the patients that we deal with or in, in people in, in animals sort of everywhere where there's a endothelium there's a glycocalyx is that absolutely yeah absolutely it's thought to be much thicker in vessels like arterioles and things um but yeah it's present on on all endothelial cells excellent excellent and so and so what what does sort of in terms of um, fluid therapy and and uh, how we administer that so so what does it mean to be a very cautious use of fluid therapy um maybe initial resuscitation of of, of um that intravascular volume or giving boluses of fluids and, and then ongoing fluid therapy. So yeah. how, how does that affect the endothelium? So just, um, I guess, with the glycocalyx in mind, it's just really important to think about um, iatrogenic worsening of disease and the fact that if we over-infuse these septic patients, we can actually make them much worse. Um, and in humans, that's really been linked to kind of increased mortality. And this understanding of the glycocalyx and how that sometimes, you know, it can make these patients vulnerable to fluids has actually informed international guidelines for the treatment of sepsis. Um, so what they're now recommending is that we have, as you say, cautious use of fluids um, following initial emergency resuscitation. And it's important to say that it's still um, very vital that we give these patients fluids. We still need to fluid resuscitate them. Um, there's evidence that looks at glycocalyx breakdown in that initial resuscitation period. And they've shown that the volume that we give is not related to glycocalyx breakdown. So we still need to give fluids, but we just need to tailor that to our patients and make sure that we're not giving them too much. Um, practically, that can look at that can look like things um, such as giving them boluses. So, um, what I found really helpful in in practice is using my perfusion parameters. So, we all know the clinical signs of hypovolemia, things like tachycardia, peripheral vasoconstriction, cold extremities, hypotension, all that kind of thing. So, what I would do is assess my patient. Um, give a, a fluid bolus something like 5 to 10 mil per kilo over 10 minutes or so and then reassess my patient and see you know has my heart rate gone down has my blood pressure gone up and then I can base my um, future fluid therapy plan on how my patient has responded to that initial bolus. Thanks for, for that and, and then and then say so if you're dealing with a with a sick patient Sarah then then does that how does that change things with regard to um to to your fluid therapy plan with response to that endothelial glycocalyx? Yeah, I think we just need to be aware of the patients that are likely to have a more vulnerable endothelium. So our septic patients are patients that have kind of widespread inflammation, anaphylaxis even, and that they're going to be more prone to volume overload and therefore we need to just reassess them much more regularly, potentially trial them with lower fluid boluses initially um, and really watch out for those signs of over-infusion. Thank, thank you. And then, so I suppose if you're going to compare like the different um, fluids that we could give, is, is there a preference, I suppose, for one or should we still give crystalloid fluids or I suppose what about colloids or, or hypertonic fluids as well? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and there's been some kind of research into using different types of fluids and how that impacts the glycocalyx. Um, and there's nothing, unfortunately, clear cut at the moment as to one's much better than the other one. I think we still have to use our clinical judgment in terms of looking at our patient and choosing our type of fluid based on what we think they're going to need. You know, our, our isotonic fluids um, is really good for our patients that have hypovolemia, but are also dehydrated in terms of their intervascular um, and interstitial volume. We know that if we give them fluids, 80% of this is going to leave our intravascular compartment within an hour. So that's really good for our patients that are dehydrated as well as hypovolemic. If we consider our hypotonic um, saline, that's good for our hypovolemic patients that have normal interstitial um, hydration. So that's really going to draw all of that fluid in from their tissues. Um, so we need to be aware that that's going to dehydrate their tissues. And if they're already dehydrated, that's going to make things worse. Um, our colloids are a little bit... Um, different and and there's some kind of uh, new thinking going on around there so um obviously our colloids have a high molecular weight particle um so they're really good at kind of increasing the plasma oncotic pressure and therefore they're kind of more efficient as at holding fluid into that in that intravascular space we've got our synthetic colloids um, such as our hydroxy starches which are as we say good at increasing our blood pressure but they're not without their side effects um, and there has been obviously in humans a, a link between um, starches and acute kidney injury that's more controversial in dogs but I think some research coming out in terms of um, the impact of the number of days of using synthetic colloids rather than the, the overall dose. Um, and there's also been, interestingly, some kind of in vitro studies in terms of looking at coagulation um, whilst using synthetic colloids. And that may potentially link uh, with the evidence that says that when we give synthetic colloids, we also cause some glycocalyx damage as well. So there has been a movement towards moving uh, or kind of using more of our natural colloids to so things like plasma uh, and whole blood. And um, plasma transfusions are also really useful in terms of our septic patients that um, were struggling to keep the fluid in their vessels, but they're also showing um, coagulopathic um, problems because obviously we can then give them some of those coagulation factors back. Um, it's important to know, I guess, when we're using our natural colloids that we do have to give a very large volume to actually impact the oncotic pressure. Um, and there's been other research looking at ways that we can get around this in terms of just giving albumin support, whether that's canine specific or even things like using cryopore plasma, um, which has been found to have a, a higher colloid oncotic pressure than even fresh frozen plasma. And it, of course, is much cheaper as well. In terms of which one's best for glycocalyx health, I think there's um, the jury's still out on that one, and we we just need to look at our patients and and uh, assess what may be best for them in the in the long term. And so, so what can we do to protect the glycocalyx, or I suppose to consider that we don't cause too much iatrogenic damage in the therapies that we give? Yeah, so there's been lots of uh, research out there in terms of looking at different ways that we can protect the glycocalyx. And the one that we keep coming back to is preventing this fluid volume overload. Um, and the way that we can practically do that is by assessing our dynamic markers um, while, we, while we're doing fluid resuscitation. Um, 
when I talk about dynamic markers, essentially what I mean is things like pulse pressure variation um, and using things like echocardiography. Um, as an anaesthetist, pulse pressure variation is the one that I tend to lean towards. Um, it's most useful in our um, anaesthetized and our mechanically ventilated patients. And essentially what we can do is look at the difference in our pulse pressure during the respiratory cycle. And that can be really helpful in terms of giving us an indication as to whether um, our patient is likely to be responsive um, to further volume expansion. In humans and in dog studies as well, they found that a pulse pressure variation of over 13% um, means that our patient is likely to be fluid responsive. That essentially just gives us an indication of where we are on that frank styling curve. So are we at that nice steep part where if we give more fluids, we're going to stretch our um, myocardiocytes um, more and therefore enable them to contract harder and increase our cardiac output? Or are we further up at that um, more shallow level where fluid volume resuscitation really isn't going to help in terms of our cardiac output. That's super helpful for uh, an anaesthetized patient. Practically in first opinion practice, what I found more useful was actually just looking at the heart. Um, so when I did my thoracic point of care ultrasound, I'd have a little look at the heart in the mushroom view and then subjectively assess the side, the size of that left ventricle. So um, does it look nice and dilated and filled or actually do the walls on, on that ventricle look really thick? Are the walls even kissing, for example? It's very subjective um, and obviously there's many other kind of disease processes that can influence that. So it's not a kind of look at the heart and then decide just based on that which fluids to give. Um, but it's a nice additional piece of the puzzle if you're already looking at your perfusion parameters and thinking mm, maybe this patient is going to benefit. It's just another kind of supporting factor. Would you say that some of um, it might be worth sort of trialing um, a fluid challenge and seeing the patient's response to that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know the details of it, but I think there's um, actually quite a um, been in, in humans. They've uh, injected a certain amount of fluid and and the way that the patient has responded to that um, tells you if the, the animal is likely to be fluid responsive. And I think um, I think Dave Beeston's your guy for that. He worked out how much to inject over a certain period of time and, and see the, the response. Um, but I don't think there's a hard and, and fast rule at the moment, unfortunately, in terms of specifically how to fluid challenge your patients. Yeah, the, the microbolus, I think he's 50-50 uh, with a response in, in that at the, at the moment. Um, so, um, so I suppose if we're thinking about that endothelial glycocalyx, so what what studies do you think that um, uh, you'd like to do? I suppose in in regard to looking at that. Yeah. So, um, for me as a as a vet, I think uh, developing better ways to assess its thickness and its health is the kind of number one priority at the moment. Um, lots of the techniques that we use are not invasive, but they they kind of involve blood sampling. Um, and that's obviously not ideal for regular measurements or um, long term measurements. There's there's quite a cool technique out there that uses um, side stream dark field microscopy. And what that does is essentially um, assess they call it a perfused boundary region, but um, it looks at the red blood cells and it looks how close the red blood cells get to the endothelium. Um, so if you think if you've got a nice thick glycocalyx barrier covering your endothelial cells, then the red blood cells are going to be right in the middle of your capillary. Um, but if you've got a 
rubbish thin layer of glycocalyx then your red blood cells are going to be able to get super close to your endothelial cells um, and that's a really nice non-invasive way of, of looking at glycocalyx health and you can do it um, nicely on anesthetized patients and I think if we had um, technologies like this um, a little bit more available to, to us as vets then um, we could more easily assess things that are going to positively and negatively impact our glycocalyx health. And, and where's the sort of the, the research sort of currently going in 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 people and I suppose like in the in the vet field re- regarding the endothelial glycocalyx? Yeah so in humans they're um, kind of a little bit of a, a step ahead of us um, in that they're already using technologies um, that assess glycocalyx health to investigate whether things are um, positively or negatively impacting that. So um, specifically around things like um, anesthetic protocols, there's been research into um, whether sevoflurane is beneficial. Um, in vitro studies, for example, found sevoflurane promising in terms of maintaining the glycocalyx during um, ischemic reperfusion injury. Um, unfortunately, that didn't translate um, to in vivo studies, but it's a, a nice step in the right direction in terms of trying to identify things that, that can be more protective. Um, they've also interestingly looked at things like um, lipid emulsion. So that's really um, important in terms of parenteral nutrition um, in our intensive care unit or in human intensive care unit. And obviously, um, they wanted to make sure that they weren't damaging kind of the endothelial cells by infusing all these lipids. And interestingly, they found that that the lipid infusion was actually protective um, in terms of the endothelial health rather than damaging. So um, really important to know that things that they're doing as kind of a mainstay treatment aren't damaging these vulnerable endothelium um, endothelial cells even more um, in our in our critical patients. So maybe when we administer it for <coughs> toxic uh, uh, or toxic ingestion, maybe it has a, some sort of benefit uh, associated with that. Yeah, yeah nice sorry. to know it's not harmful anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um, and so it's like if, if you're trying to sort of reflect back on, on this, is, is, is really the endothelial glycogenics is more of a, a, a something to be like aware of because I suppose like practically speaking like we can't <clears throat> physically see it we, although we know that it that it exists and we know that in some disease processes it's going to be potentially obliterated but it might be obliterated by by our therapy as 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 well so so I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is sometimes we might be stuck between a rock and a hard place about you know we, we don't want to cause more issues but then obviously we we probably still need to give um fluid therapy to the to the to the patient but is there I, I suppose what I don't know. Maybe in the future, it might be nice to say, "Well, okay, we can do this, but maybe we need to administer, I don't know, some product as it might be like lipid emulsion or something else to to maybe help it if we're concerned of ongoing ongoing leakiness." Yeah, absolutely. I think you're you're you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of where we are at with with our understanding. Um, it's something that, as general practitioners, we just really need to to know about in terms of. Um, the septic patient or, or the, the um, I guess, the, the pyo patient, something like that that's, that's come to you. And just in the back of your head, be aware that their, their endothelium is going to be a little bit leaky. Um, you probably do need to give them some fluids and fluid resuscitate them. But if they're, if they're not responding super well, um, just have in your mind that volume overload is, is more prone um, or more likely in these cases. Um, the ideal would obviously be 
to be able to give something that kind of reconstitutes this this barrier and there is research looking into things like sulodexide which um, is meant to kind of plug the holes in the glycocalyx but um, we're not there in terms of having a, a kind of magic molecule that we can give and, and fix the glycocalyx but it is just about being aware that um, these patients are quite vulnerable. And, and can I ask, obviously, with your, um, I suppose, your, your current uh, focus being on anesthesia and analgesia, is, is there, um, a, and those patients, I suppose, being still for a period of time, is there any um, studies either in people or, or in um, in animals and looking at the endothelial glycocalyx in regard to anesthetic agents and, and drugs? You mentioned about a bit before about SIVO. Yeah, so most of the in vitro studies were really promising around sevoflurane. Um, as I said, they didn't kind of quite translate in terms of the, the in vivo studies, um, but there has been quite an interesting uh, human study come out recently um, looking at glycocalyx breakdown during um, anesthesia of major abdominal surgery. And interestingly, they did find a link between length of general anesthesia and glycocalyx breakdown, as well as the fact that patients that had surgery specifically on their liver had increased glycocalyx breakdown. So there's lots of kind of hypothesis generating stuff out there at the moment and there's many different factors specifically under anesthesia which could impact our glycocalyx health Um, but again nothing concrete at the moment in terms of this is really good and this is really bad. (laughs) Fair fair enough Um, and Kit can I ask are are you involved in any studies that now are you continuing with your your, the um, the research group? Yeah um, so I did um, I've recently finished off some research with the Bristol Renal Research Group and um, we were looking at um, glycocalyx breakdown in mitral valve disease um, and glycocalyx breakdown in hypercoagulability, um, which we did find um, the glycocalyx was massively increased in both those diseases, which is really interesting. Um, I've since moved to RVC, as you know, <laughs> and I'm working with um, the anaesthetist there to, to look at um, glycocalyx breakdown um, during anaesthesia in um, septic patients specifically. We've picked them because they're likely to be a, a, a kind of a more vulnerable population. Um, however, as you probably know by the end of this podcast, that there's lots of kind of compounding factors in terms of um, things that can affect glycocalyx health. So there's lots of different avenues to explore, I think, is probably the, the headline. Fair, fair enough. Well, well, um, well, thank you, I suppose, very much for your time. Do you, do you think, um, is there something else that we, that we, that we missed? I don't think there is. I think I guess I'd just like to say thank you to all of the the supervisors and colleagues that I've worked with um, during the year. And um, yeah, the glycocalyx is a very cool structure. And hopefully this podcast can get some more people um, interested in looking at it. Well, well, there you go. So um, we'll wrap it up there. So thank you very much for your your time um, today, Sarah. And um, and thank you for for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device. And that way you don't have to worry about missing a podcast. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Acast. That would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or or basically anyone interested in the endothelial glycocalyx. That would be good. We'll play some show notes on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions, then please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.